miss the show, no worries on pointing on this podcast. Justin Trudeau is now ready to whip out his F-35s doing a complete reversal on a fighter jet that he swore up and down back in 2015 he would never buy. He mocked it, said it doesn't even fly. Well, now Russia's threatening the world with World War III, and now his government says, hey, we're going to buy 88 of these planes because we are needing them essentially for our national security. Boy, how things change. And, of course, it all is on the assumption that the deal gets actually signed and delivered. We'll talk about the new climate emission plan the Trudeau government laid out today, which makes very clear that despite the world changing with the threat of Russia, this government's still going all in on climate change. So his government now plans to cut emissions by 40%, which is a major signal to our energy sector that uh, they're not going to be part of the solution to the world's needs for secure energy. But what's the cost to you? Oh, there is one. We'll talk about that. Pierre Polyera says he plans to unleash the power of cryptocurrency, things like Bitcoin. He'll make Canada the blockchain capital of the world. It sounds very exciting. I have no idea what it means. I literally have no idea about this world. So if this is an actual plan, will it just appeal to the fringe? Or is this something everyday Canadians can get their head around? Is he ahead of his times? Or is this just spin? We'll talk about it because it is one of those issues that's not going away. But it is very confusing. And Russia, it'll scale back its operations, it says, invasion invading Ukraine. Is this an admission of defeat or just another lie? We'll talk with someone who is adamant Ukraine has won and it's a matter of time before Russia leaves. Let's get talking. This is On Point with Alex Pearson. The new Liberal government won't buy the overpriced F-35 stealth fighter jet. It's a stealth fighter that will cost tens of billions more than what Harper promised, a stealth fighter that can't defend our Arctic, a stealth fighter that's not actually stealth, and until yesterday, a fighter jet that Stephen Harper's own government put on hold for those same reasons. Well, this is now the fighter jet that Stephen Harper wants to buy no matter what, no matter what it costs. That F-35 might be Stephen Harper's dream, but I can tell you, for Canadian taxpayers, it'll be a nightmare. Oh, and yet here we are seven years later, and Mr. Trudeau's whipping out the same fighter jet he once mocked. Alex Pearson with you on this Tuesday, March 29th, and great to have you here. And it looks like Canada may finally get this new fleet of fighter jets, you know, the same F-35 that Trudeau was adamant, nope, he'll never buy, because as he told the crowds back in 2015, it can't fly, it never will. And so, of course, back then, he stated that if elected, his government would never replace our aging fighter jets with a fleet of F-35s. And back then, of course, the F-35 was the butt of his talking points. It was just a good way to attack Stephen Harper, whose government had ordered 65 or 66 of the same aircraft. It was back in 2010 and paid $9 billion. Now, the deal ended up falling apart after Harper refused to release all the costs of the program, and then it went on to trigger a non-confidence vote, and then... We went into an election. But had that deal not fallen apart, we would have started getting F-35s, new ones, back in 2016, and we'd have 66 modern, workable fighter jets today. We don't. And instead, seven years later, with no usable fighter jets 
and a nuclear superpower threatening World War III, Trudeau has literally done a backflip, announcing that he's now excited to announce that his government will purchase 88 of the very same F-35s. And as Anita Anand, the defense minister, stated Monday, quote, a new fleet of state-of-the-art fighter jets is essential for Canada's security, sovereignty, and ability to defend itself, end quote. So you see, the fighter jet her boss insisted he'd never buy is now an essential part of our national security. Except you look at how much time we have wasted. We're talking like 12 years. 12 years has been blown between the Harper government and the Trudeau government. And now Trudeau's deal is going to cost us $19 billion, but we won't get a jet until at least 2025. Because now we're at the back of the line behind countries like Germany and 17 other countries, which have all placed orders in recent uh, months for the same plane. And our deal's not even yet signed. So for now, this is just another grand announcement, which in this country, politicians have mastered this. They make the grand announcements, but rarely do we ever actually get the goods, as we are now learning, especially when it comes to defense spending, which is generally the first to be kicked down the line. I mean, you never need it until you need it. And then, of course, it's too late. And this F-35 that we're going to possibly be buying, no different than what Harper was trying to buy. It's not the best jet. It's not the best price jet. But it's better than what we've got now. And the world has changed. And so Trudeau's backed into a corner with severe vulnerabilities to our defense and NATO allies, of course, no longer willing to put up with our never-ending non-action. So he's got no choice but to act. And so what he mocked that was too expensive, not all that good, is now essential. Which is a real rub for me. Because we're paying the price again for political games played with our national security. And so we're now you know, stuck playing catch-up, and we're going to end up paying double for something we could have gotten years ago. Years ago. Assuming, of course, we actually get this deal signed this time. And the cost cannot be the excuse, not with this government, because we all know that since Trudeau was elected, he hasn't met one budget promise yet in seven years. Not one. So it's not about costs with this government. This was a war over a fighter jet. This was a, Harper says this, I'm going to say that. And it was bad for this country. Because frankly, we should have these already. We have wasted 25 years ignoring through multiple governments our Air Force capabilities. And I'm sure there are many out there who could find another 25 years why we don't need them still, but the reality is we do. And speaking of budget, uh, we'll get our first budget, our first full budget from this government in over two years, and we're going to do that on Thursday. So it's going to be very interesting to see what spending will look like when it comes to defense. Because don't forget, um, you know, NATO wants their money. They want Canada to put up their 2%. And Jagmeet Singh, Trudeau's partner in crime, has made very clear he does not support that number. He says it's an arbitrary number. But, Demato, but NATO is saying, look, 
We're not pulling our weight we haven't for decades. We need to step up or we're going to find ourselves very alienated on the world stage. And so Trudeau's going to make a choice here. Is he going to further alienate and infuriate our NATO allies or is he going to, you know, further and alienate this country or will he manage to get Singh to support spending on something that he doesn't see as a priority and he'll probably never see as a priority. And so that will be the real test for this coalition, non-coalition. Will Jagmeet Singh actually support spending for these kinds of things? And so that uh, budget, which, um, again, full of numbers, full of spending, I don't know what they will announce, but I know that they're not going to be cutting back. This is not going to be an austerity budget. But there are very big obligations we have, not just military, not just defense, but we also have a lot of banks saying, uh, you can't keep spending or you're going to aggregate, aggregate further the inflation problem we've got. And so I don't know, what are they going to do? Spend like crazy or <laughs> rein it in and show that they can balance uh, the books? That is the big test. So we'll talk about uh, all of that uh, in, in the show. We're also going to break down this new climate emissions plan, which, and, and this will start to kind of fall out over the next few days, but it makes very clear on first blush that the Trudeau government still very much sees climate change as its priority. And it's not going to pivot like every other country in the world, or certainly our NATO allies, to reflect the new dangerous changes or very expensive inflation challenges that are really hurting average Canadians. Because this new plan isn't just unrealistic. It's going to cost the average Canadian even more at a time when they can't afford to pay more. We can't afford more costs. Remember, we got a carbon tax coming out on Friday, another 12 cents. And while details on this plan are pretty vague, what will be guaranteed with this, if we're going to cut emissions in eight years by 40%, um, it's going to cost us a lot of money. And it was just last week where the parliamentary uh, budget watchdog, Yves Giroux, warned, look, the carbon tax we were promised was going to make us money. Remember, it was the only tax in the world that was going to make us money. Well, it's not. It's not going to rebate most Canadians. The average Canadian is going to end up spending thousands of dollars on this tax. Big oil lobbyists have had their time on the field. Now it's over to the workers and engineers who will build solutions for their sector, for their communities, and for their kids. <sighs> All righty. There's the Prime Minister. And here we are at a time when countries around the world are looking to Canada as an energy solution, you know, to rid their reliance on tyrannical oil from places like Russia. And the Trudeau government instead has issued its new climate plan, which very much puts our energy sector on notice that uh, its days are numbered. Because emissions, according to this plan, must be cut in the oil and gas sector by 40% by 2030. We're talking eight years where this plan is asking us to get to emission levels that no government has been able to do for 34 years. And the numbers on this get very, very complicated. So I'm not going to bore you with them because even I glaze over them. But as Lori Goldstein laid out in the Toronto Sun, in order for us to meet this plan, Trudeau would literally have to shut down the equivalent of our entire oil and gas sector, our agricultural sector, and electric sector in eight years. So when I hear that, it becomes a clear no we cannot do this. It would be impossible. 
But I also hear Trudeau is not going to allow this country to become a solution for energy security. And of course, this will come with enormous costs at a time when Canadians can least afford it. Dan McTague is a former Liberal MP, now President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, and um, I wanted you to comment on this because no one really knows this issue better than you, but I wanted to ask you first because you are actually in Alberta. What's the reaction been like? I'm sure this went over like a lead balloon today. I think it's uh, one of uh, shock, uh, but not surprise, dismay, but uh, coming from Trudeau, uh, no one uh, expects anything but the unexpected uh, and things that are usually both uh, irrelevant and, uh, as we're seeing, uh, making these kind of statements at a time which the world needs more Canadian oil, produced with uh, some of the highest uh, environmental and uh, governance standards in the world, this guy wants to go to war. <laughs> and he wants to do it in a way that doesn't punish them. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. it's nice to say you don't like this. It's going to punish you and I. Uh, what what's fine? Four dollars a liter for gasoline. Uh, you know, a doubling in the price, tripling the price of your propane, your natural gas. Look, in the past ten years, with all the regulations and the strangulation of an industry that uh, supplies twenty five billion bucks in revenues for the federal, provincial, and municipal governments right here in Ontario and across mm-hmm. the country. You know, if you want to get rid of this industry, then how are you going to get rid of 10% of your economy, 15% of your economy? And how are you going to do it when in the past 10 years, all these regulations has really only meant a small decrease in emissions, 1% in the past 10, 15 years. Now you're saying you want to go 42 times that that level? Uh, Laurie Goldstein is correct, and you're correct in citing him. This is a prescription for shutting down the economy at a time in which the rest of the world is scratching their head. Little wonder, regardless of what you think in terms of those European politicians, what part of the spectrum they come from, they got it right. This guy is an embarrassment. He's very dangerous. Yeah, and look, they had an opportunity to pivot. I mean, like like Germany. We saw Germany, which, you know, Angela Merkel went all in on energy reliance on Russia, even though they were warned, don't do the energy deal with Nord Stream 2. Don't do it. Yet she wanted to do it. She was all about the renewables. They have thrown all of that out the window, and they are completely changing their strategy because now they understand energy is a security issue. It's also a major geopolitical shift with Russia, you know, you know threatening World War III. And so this government had an opportunity or has an opportunity to pivot and say, look, we can achieve, you know, climate goals, but we also need to be responsible in in the new geopolitical situation. And it's very clear that uh, they are not going to allow Stephen Gabold to, to miss his opportunity to, to completely take this country in um, a new direction. Um, but the report itself um, is very vague on how any of this is going to be yeah. achieved. But you just look at the history. I mean, you know, he's blaming, Trudeau's blaming today Harper for not meeting climate targets. He adopted the same climate targets that he himself couldn't meet. Well, look, Jean Chrétien saw Kyoto and realized it's not something that you had to take extraordinarily seriously. You could kick these things down the road. If you think that you trying to be cute and, and uh, achieving an international uh, you know, uh, status by strangling yourself is the wise way to go about it. I suspect the prime minister may not be aware of the fact that, uh, you know, what has gripped the world uh, is an issue of global security and climate is important, but it's only one part of many other issues, poverty, drinking water on first nations. There's a number of issues out there that I think are far uh, competitive and, and far more important to Canadians. But for the prime minister to suggest you know, he can blow nine billion bucks. What's wrong with people that they actually don't, can't clue into the fact that you can't keep making promises about spending billions of dollars that you don't have? Sooner or later, 
You'd really have it if you had oil revenue. Well, yeah. It, <laughs> I mean, look, you can have it work both ways. I mean, we're going to be on oil for a while because even if yeah. you, even if Dan, um, we could get rid of it in use of transportation. Let's just say we didn't need fuel for cars anymore or transportation, which is uh, like ludicrous because mm-hmm. it's just not going to happen. Um, even if we didn't use that kind of fuel, we still need energy resources because everything we use in our life, everything. Whether it's your iPhone, your computer, any pl- t- Tupperware, it's all made of oil derivatives, so it's never exactly. going away. Your 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 uh, solar panels, uh, which don't last forever, your windmills that can't produce and, and create themselves, and yes, your electric vehicles, all of which have uh, significant components of uh, of oil. Look, if we're going to say that one of the things we're going to do here is drop emissions on things like, uh, and that we're only talking CO two by all adopting EVs, and I got a question for you. Where are you going to come up with the several trillions of dollars you're going to need to build four nuclear reactors here in the province of Ontario, especially since you don't like natural gas? How are you going to pay for another two or three, uh, you know, uh, uh, projects like Muskrat Falls that have cost the Canadian taxpayer five billion bucks in a province of Newfoundland, which is essentially bankrupt as a result of it? British Columbia, Site C Dam, started out six billion a few years ago, now 27 billion. You need four more of those. Look, we've got to stop this prime minister from going down this road of, of, of throwing out uh, wonderful confetti over the idea of magic and make-believe. He doesn't understand the world in which we live. He doesn't understand the reality of Canadians trying to struggle to make ends meet. And he doesn't understand the deep economic hole that he and his government have placed this country in. And for that, I don't care if you're in Alberta, I don't care if you're in Newfoundland or in Ontario or Quebec, we all have something in common. It's time for him to go. You'll forgive me if I, I don't won't. think about monetary policy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but he doesn't. And, you know, we had, while I was away, I, I, it was interesting to read the uh, the um, Parliamentary Budget Officer's uh, report, yeah. Yves Giroux, saying, look, I mean, for this tax rebate, um, you're not actually, most most Canadians, he was saying, are going to end up paying thousands of dollars in carbon pricing and not actually yeah. getting it back. So apparently we were right. It is an actual tax, which we always it knew tax. it was. But again, yeah, we knew. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so we we know that Canadians are catching on to this, and it's not just energy security. We're dealing with massive inflation, which is now you know threatening to be runaway inflation. Um, you know, energy crisis. There's so many issues that have changed since this government got into power, but they're not changing with it because they seem to be. And so does the Biden administration. They are just doubling and tripling down. Uh, connect the dots. You're destroying manufacturing. You're dra- driving up the cost of energy. You're driving up the cost of food. Mention that to any crowd, to anybody, it doesn't matter if you're left wing, right wing, whatever, winging. At the end of the day, when you start messing around with people's ability to make ends meet and you start fooling around with their ability to heat and eat, your government is finished. And that's exactly why Justin Trudeau and his Confederates over in the uh, New Democratic Party decided to prevent our democratic right to take them, line them up on the 30 yard line, and punt them to the end zone anytime between now and 2025. Folks, you've been had, you've been played. And you continue to allow this phony to continue to destroy this country. Unfortunately, uh, don't take my word for it. It's coming, knocking at your door. Every one of us is going to uh, uh, incur a substantial decrease in the standard of living. The days of prosperity, thanks to Trudeau and his gang, are over. Well, I mean, it's going to start on Friday when we get the next bump in the carbon pricing at the pump, which is another 12 cents. Oh, yeah. Um, But, you know... You know, I, I don't know where this goes from here. We've seen polling on this. Most North Americans, Canadians, and um, even Quebecers, they've all changed their stance about energy and where they want to get it from. And the only people that aren't listening are those 
who are in charge. And so I'm not sure where this fight goes next because, you know, I think it's going to become clear. And by the way, they put in no clarity on what this cap looks like. So I don't even know how they're, how are they going to do all of this in eight years when they haven't even detailed how it would be done? It's virtue signaling. Obviously, there's some kind of conference that's going up that he wants to go to. Perhaps he doesn't want to be lectured at it, but he's going to be here tomorrow in, uh, in British Columbia, uh, and he's going to be saying uh, a number of wonderful things about partnerships and whatnot. Look, we've excelled in the idea of car- uh, carbon. Now, I want, this, I want this for the trendies out there to understand that. The country, its energy sector, and other sectors are world leaders on carbon storage and on providing a product that is second to none in the rest of the world that takes into account not just our social and our governance uh, uh, requirements, but also our environmental responsibilities. So Canadians want to turn around and allow one man who happens to be their leader of this country to crap on something that is as important as energy. Then folks, uh, you know, look around yourself. You don't like inflation. Uh, you know what happened. You know how this is happening. And this is done because we have a guy who's too busy printing money, spending, uh, uh, you know, with abandon and trying to impress people around the world who are scratching their heads saying, why doesn't Canada have its act together? This is a message for the young people, too. You're being misled. Smarten up. Yeah, well, when you've got a number of European nations coming to us and saying, hey, we will buy what you have, let us do it. And they're just turning their nose up at it. It's just, uh, yeah. we'll, we'll see what the next few days... It, well, it's uh, not just a lost opportunity, but I think it's 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 reckless, especially when um, you know they're not even talking about what we do have right now, which is nuclear energy, and they're not even entertaining that. So, nope. it is ideological. Okay, so we'll see um, what you find when you're in Alberta and uh, the fallout in the next couple of days. But I appreciate you joining us because I know that you're big in demand these days. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Alex. All right, that is Dan McTagg uh, working overtime these days on this. So we'll. Uh, kind of see what Alberta, Saskatchewan, and where some of those provinces say over the next um, couple of days, because there will be followed on this. Welcome back to this show here on Tuesday. So if Pierre Pauly ever becomes prime minister, he plans, in his words, to unleash the power of cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, and he'll make Canada the blockchain capital of the world. And he says he'll simplify and streamline rules and taxes, making it easier for Canadians to decide, you know, to use cryptocurrency instead of traditional forms of money. And he insists on the importance of decentralizing the power of central banks, which all sounds very, very exciting, except I have zero idea what any of that means. Because no matter how many times it's explained to me, or I talk about it, the world of cryptocurrency remains confusing, very ambiguous, and a world that seems to favor a very few. And from what I've managed to kind of understand, it's a world of economic volatility, which comes with much more risk than a reward. So I can't figure out if Pierre Polyevra's ahead of his time, or if this will not resonate with the average Canadian at all. Let me ask someone who actually knows about this. John Dwyer, the CEO of Wonder Gaming. Um, and you do deal in this world. Okay, can I, what I need you to do before we get into the whole policy and whether this is a good idea for Pierre Pauly can you explain in the simplest terms this world of cryptocurrency so that everyday people can understand the value or lack thereof? Sure, I mean, so... You know, fundamentally, you got to look at two separate discussions that are happening. So there's discussions around uh, blockchain and creating a decentralized infrastructure that inherently takes some of the powers away from the central bank, which is really important nowadays, given uh, the $400 billion that was created out of thin air and blasted into the economy, which then resulted in this 
verging on hyperinflation we're all living through. And then the other is, is, is cryptocurrency. And so, you know, cryptocurrency inherently is a form of capital outside of what we call fiat. So fiat currency is like a Canadian dollar or a U.S. dollar. And a cryptocurrency is actually a currency that is held and accounted for on a blockchain. So blockchain simply is a system of recording information. And what a blockchain does is it, it records what we call provenance, which is the ownership of something. So if you and I go out and we create Bitcoin, for instance, and we issue 100 Bitcoins into the economy, and they're all purchased at a agreed upon price of, say, $100 each, you can't make more of them. You can't say that there's 100,000 or a million of them out there because the blockchain functions as the ledger to tell you how many are there. Now, the important criteria of the blockchain is that it's decentralized. So it's held on multiple computers, many of which will be offline. So you can have, uh, you can have data houses in Beijing. You can have some in, dare I say, Russia. You can have some in Canada and other portions or parts of the world. And what Pierre Paul Hebert is, is essentially advocating for is for Canada to become one of the hubs globally that is creating a regulatory environment that helps not only companies uh, to get into this industry and to interact, but also allows banks like banking institutions here in Canada is very interesting because we have five banks in the United States. You've got over 3000 in many other countries. You see many, many more banks. But it's very difficult for crypto companies to have a relationship with conventional banks. So they go to credit unions and other fringe institutions. So what he's advocating for is this opportunity to have crypto not take over from conventional currencies, but have the opportunity to compete or have the same what we call velocity, which is which is how you're seeing money move around the economy, basically give it a fighting chance. And that is where the marketplace is going. So just think of cryptocurrency the same way as you would have as a dollar, but it's not something that is backed up. Or Tangible. Rentable. Yeah. But, but it's, also, it's not like a credit card. It's like it's like a, a the way I'm seeing it, because it's still clear as mud to me, is it's like you, you, you're basically dealing with an invisible currency that exists but doesn't exist. I still find it very confusing. But you can argue the same thing about the U.S. or Canadian dollar. I mean, you can't walk into Fort Knox and count the amount of gold and then ascribe some sort of value and say that it's, it's backed by that. You can't look at an asset and then compare that asset to the value of the cash that the central bank prints and puts out into the economy. We live in very strange times right now as it relates to, mm. to really saying the value of a dollar is X. And so for people, the, the, the difficult reality that we live in is that, as you said when we opened the segment, cryptocurrency is very volatile. Well, so are the capital markets. I mean, go look at, go look at tech right now. Shopify was the biggest yeah. company in Canada. It was bigger than RBC. And it just got cut down 60-odd percent um, in, in, in a matter of less than a year. That is massive volatility. So to say that volatility only exists in crypto is, is unfortunately not, not, not accurate. Okay. But then you look at a place like El Salvador, which looked at cryptocurrency saying, you know, that they'd become the, the first legal, you know, um, operator in this world. And it didn't go well. I mean, ultimately, it failed there and, and cost them a lot of money. And so how do you then, you know, not fall into that? Yeah. So, I mean, there are specific regions that have tried to use cryptocurrency to solve for ever inflating dollar values. I mean, you can look at the historical imbalance in power that happens in a lot of 
Central and South American countries. You know, you see things like hyperinflation, you know, images of people pushing uh, um, wheelbarrows full of cash to buy a, a, a loaf of bread. And so these are these are regions that have tried to say, look, we'll put in cryptocurrency and it'll solve for all of our problems. But the problems are so systemic and so much deeper that cryptocurrency can't come in and solve for them. The other issue is, just like you'll see in any other industry, there are you know, nefarious characters that get into these businesses, that get into the infrastructure of how you know, they're put in place, um, and they exploit it. And, and you really did see that in a lot of the experiments in South America. So, I, again, I, I wouldn't say, and I'm not here to be some crypto evangelist, but what I'm saying is I think we need to take an approach towards crypto that it's not going away. And for every moment that the government, institutional banks, and auditors, like the big accounting firms, stop companies from interacting and transacting in crypto, it's a mistake because you're just forcing it more and more into the gray economy when we should be embracing it. It's not meant to replace the dollar. It's meant to give another utility or another ability to purchase goods just with a different currency. Like, who does this play to? Because I can't see mainstream Canadians looking at this and saying, wow, that's really amazing. I'd love to learn more about it because, you know, at the end of the day, people just want to know, do I have money in my bank account or not? And can I pay my bills? Um, Well, you could say the exact same thing about all of the money that you make or that individuals make in their career from, you know, providing any service and having it live exclusively in your bank account and transacting only through online payments, your debit card. 20 years ago, if that was to be the case, when that first started to come into vogue, the idea of not going to the teller. And now over the past five years, you've, you've pretty much seen uh, uh, hard cash almost vanish. Um, and so that graduation that we've had towards us emotionally and mentally accepting the fact that our relationship with currency is not a physical form of holding a fabric in your hand, that's already happened. This is just the next generation of it. And so I think, I think uh, psychologically, people are a lot closer to it than you think. But to answer your question, and, and what Mr. Polyev is doing, what's so important is there is no infrastructure in place right now that incentivizes the banks and the auditors to interact with cryptocurrency. And it's a really important discussion here in Canada. Canada has five banks six if we include national, maybe seven if we include Laurentian. And these banks themselves and the auditors, so think of firms like KPMG, Ernst & Young, these are big auditing firms that would work with companies, both public and private, to audit their financials and then deliver them back to Canada Revenue Agency, investors and the public so that everything looks kosher. Um, the auditors themselves will not, many of whom in Canada will not handle crypto because they're not being forced to, and because there's no infrastructure. There's nothing that dictates how they can account for Bitcoin or Ethereum or Solana or whatever it may be in a relationship between the auditor and the government. So the first step Mm -hmm. has to happen in the public forum with the government saying, hey, and this is what Pierre Polyev is saying, I'm going to go province to province, and I'm going to have discussions around creating policy. And once policy is in place, banks get more comfortable. Once banks are more comfortable, auditors get more comfortable. And so it's really a mission creep. It can't happen overnight. But just like we're seeing digital currency, like the dollars that you and I earn for our job, now exclusively living in our online bank account, this is just the next step. 
All right. And so, I mean, look, and you've seen the coverage. A lot of people are looking at it like, well, like, this is crazy. He's playing to a fringe. He's playing to the truck driver who lost his account and, and they're dabbling in Bitcoin or whatever, or Elon Musk. I mean, there is a fringe element to this because it is not a mainstream kind of everything um, main street uh, way of doing business. And so is he ahead of his times or or is this just one of those policies um, that he's playing to the fringe? Because at the end of the day, whoever becomes leader of the Conservative Party has to have a vision forward for this country that most people, Canadians, can actually understand. And I'm not sure that this is easy enough to sell to everyday people. I, I don't know if I necessarily agree. I think I think it's all about creating a dialogue and a narrative that people can understand. I think a lot of people in the middle class and, 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 and in all varieties of, of, of Canadians um, have savings. Uh, many people have a broker or, or what we call an investment advisor, a portfolio manager, depending on the size of their, their book of holdings. And then you have people with companies like Wealth Simple that manage mm. their savings online. Now, a lot of these people would be interested in maybe allocating 5% of their net worth towards crypto. You're seeing more and more dialogue around it. And the, the areas where you can do that is still in the fringe. So the, the dialogue that this is, uh, him pandering to the trucker vote, I think that's, yeah. I think that's BS. I don't, I don't think that's true. There are some very, very serious powers that be. You look at companies like HUD8, which is a publicly traded company, and other crypto companies, uh, uh, tokens.com. These are billion-dollar companies uh, here in Canada that are publicly traded that if they're in the United States would be much bigger. And so this industry is there. It's here to stay. And there are strong group lobby groups, for lack of a better description, that are just advocating for the government to take a stance and develop policy. And if you really think about it, in, in all that, that, that Mr. Polyvera said, uh, all he's saying is we want to establish policy. He's not forcing it down anybody's throat. He's saying it's an alternative. There's never been dialogue around, I'm going to get rid of the Canadian dollar. So I really don't know what everybody's afraid of. I think, I think he's doing the absolute right thing, and, and it's a great evolution for the Canadian economy. Yeah. And just before I let you go, though, I mean, but, you know, his policy is kind of meant to sell as an anti-government, you know, don't let them control you. Here's more freedom. At the end of the day, though, this is a currency that doesn't have a framework, to your point. Um, it's not regulated, which scares people. And so ultimately, what he's going to have to do is the very thing that he's kind of telling people that that he's not doing. He's going to have to regulate it and create a framework so that mainstream can buy in. Well, there's an old saying on Bay Street, which is we're all part of the same hypocrisy, and it sounds like he very much <laughs> is as well. Um, you know, th it, there is a lot of hypocrisy in what he's saying, because by virtue of getting government involved, it really does fly in the face of a lot of the ethics of what cryptocurrency and blockchain is meant to represent, which is a decentralized universe in which you don't have one central being. So his narrative, even though he's puffed mm. it up with a lot of hyperbole, is about taking the power ex away from the central bank exclusively. Right. So I think he'd actually be better served to have more of an intelligent conversation with Canadians than pushing with fear. But I think the sentiment, what he's trying to do at the crux of it, I think is important and good for Canada. Yeah, well, no question about it. It's the start of a conversation. And uh, in my business, you never let the facts get in the way of a good story. And so I think that also plays in politics as well. We'll see where it goes. I still think it's a fascinating but very confusing issue. So um, we'll see if he can mainstream it and get the conversations that people uh, understand. But no question, it's on the table now. Appreciate you trying to break it down, John. Always a pleasure. Thank you. That is a John Dwyer joining me from uh, Wonder Gaming. So I hope you get more clarity out of this because it is. It's a, one of these things that no matter how many times it's explained to me, I'm like, uh-huh, okay, 
still don't understand. Ultimately, if you're trying to get votes, people have to understand, will this message eventually resonate? Maybe he's just too far ahead of his times? I, I don't know. Time will tell. The violence in Ukraine continues. Ukraine says Russian forces destroyed this fuel depot in Lutsk, Ukraine. The death toll rising. Ukraine now says 143 children have been killed since the fighting began. So the bloodbath continues in Mariupol today. Um, you know, what Russia says and what it actually does are two very different realities. But in the latest round of peace talks in Turkey, while Russia was bombarding cities like Mariupol, uh, there does seem to be some movement, hopefully in the right direction, with Russia promising it's scaling down its military operation, as they call it, around Kiev and some northern regions, and Ukraine promising that it will not join alliances or host bases for foreign troops on the condition that Ukraine is guaranteed protection from allied nations. And you know, Russia, there's no question, they underestimated the resistance that Ukraine has put up, and they have not been able to take control of any key region. But it's also very much left large swaths of eastern Ukraine in rubble, killing thousands of citizens. So while Russia says they're scaling back any kind of military action, which they call a sign of mutual trust, the reality for the people of Ukraine, there is absolutely no trust because Russia cannot be trusted, certainly Vladimir Putin. Andrew Zaslan joining me now. He's an economist and author. He wrote the latest book, Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Path from Market Economy to Kleptocracy. He joins us now. Good to have you. Thank you very much for having me. So today, uh, Putin and, um, and Russia is calling this a trust-building exercise. The United States saying today that they have seen absolutely no sign that Russia is at all serious about any kind of, um, you know, stopping their military operation, as they like to call it. How do you see this? Well, I think that uh, effectively what we saw today is that Ukraine has won the battle over Kiev, and that's how it uh, should be formulated. And the Russians are then declaring that they are withdrawing because they are changing the objective. I would presume that they will also withdraw altogether from uh, northern Ukraine. They simply have lost about half the troops that they sent into Ukraine. This is an extraordinary victory for Ukraine and defeat of Russia. Is that how you see it? Because a lot of people see this as, okay, Russia is just saying that they'll withdraw or they'll pull back. But do you see this as uh, Russia getting off this uh, this ramp? I think that, yes, I think that Russia is now trying to save face and say, oh, it was uh, Eastern Ukraine all the time that we wanted to um, seize, which was effectively there. Uh, announcement uh, beginning the, the war, but uh, now it's actually becoming it. But I don't think they will succeed with that either. But the big question now is not what is happening in uh, peace negotiations, but uh, what is happening in the field. Uh, who will win when the Russians are trying to regroup in, in Donbass? Uh, the Ukrainians need to have a lot of troops in other parts of the, the country while the Russians can concentrate what they have left uh, in the Don, Donbass. So that is the second big bat battle. The Ukrainians won the first battle over Kiev. 
Right. And so what happens now after this latest round of peace talks? Because there's no question Ukraine is not going to trust anything Russia says. I mean, uh, unless they actually see troops leaving the country and they get out, there's just no way that they can have any trust, um, given that they have been fooled so many times by Russia, which, you know, promised human corridors, all these other things. And then they start killing civilians again. So there's not there's no reason for Ukraine to trust anything that Russia says at this point. Indeed, you're perfectly right. So as I see it, uh, the Ukrainians say, okay, we can be neutral if you guarantee our security. And who will guarantee their security? Nobody. Mm -hmm. So therefore the war will continue. Right. Because, I mean, we've been in this position before, you know, Ukraine in 1994 says, OK, we'll, we'll give up our nuclear weapons on the on the presumption or the uh, agreement that uh, Western uh, allies or NATO allies will be there to have their back. And then here we are all these years later and no one's got their back. Um, and all we're sending really is thoughts and prayers. So, uh, you know, Ukraine, I think, probably feels failed by everybody. And so does this just continue on kind of just every day where Ukrainians are being killed every day as Russia just tries to come up with a plan B, plan C, whatever they can do to take control of something there? Yeah, approximately. But uh, now probably the Russians will not uh, fight so much in other parts of, uh, uh, of uh, Ukraine, but uh, be all the more uh, cruel in uh, the, the Donbass uh, area. Okay, but how do Ukrainians move on with life? I mean, Mariupol has been reduced to uh, rubble. It was a major city. You know, Kiev has been bombed and obliterated. Um, Kharkiv has been obliterated. I mean, is there is there going to be some rationale that, that all of a sudden Ukrainians are just supposed to go back to these places, rebuild and move on with life while the fighting continues in places like the Donetsk or the Donbass? You know, obviously not. First, uh, the Ukrainian needs uh, to get uh, control over the U uh, Ukrainian territory. And here it's unclear how they look upon uh, uh, the previously occupied parts of uh, uh, Donetsk and Lugansk uh, uh, oblasts. Uh, clearly, the Russians want to take the whole uh, territories, while mm. uh, currently they only had one third of it and Crimea is not high on the agenda uh, right now. But the, the war is simply uh, continuing. Uh, it's important that the Russians called for this meeting in Istanbul, and first they wanted to have it in uh, Belarus. The Ukrainians mm -hmm. refused, and uh, then the Russians accepted to have it in Istanbul. So it's very much uh, uh, Russia that is coming begging uh, to the Ukrainians now, and the Ukrainians are then putting up conditions which are not acceptable uh, to the Russians, because these uh, security guarantees that uh, Ukraine now demands are es essentially Article 5 uh, of uh, mm -hmm. the NATO uh, Charter. And of course, nobody will be prepared to go to war for Ukraine if Russia attacks uh, again. So therefore, the Ukrainians will uh, continue fighting until the Russians have lost uh, even more. So the Russian uh, losses have been enormous, according to mm -hmm. the Ukrainians, 17,000 dead soldiers. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. And not to mention, they've lost a number of generals, uh, high ranking generals, the, the inner circle of Putin. I mean, I think the last count was, I think, seven uh, generals that had been killed, which is unheard of, uh, but certainly revealing, you know, just how strong Russia's military might not, in fact, be. Having said all that, Anders, um, Zelensky has said um, that he wants to talk to Putin and meet him physically, which seems uh, utterly crazy. 
um, three members of the Ukrainian negotiating delegation in Belarus died suddenly. Um, others were, were poisoned, including oligarch uh, Abramovich, who had tried to, to, you know, become part of a, a peace negotiation in Kiev. And so is there any way that uh, President Zelensky is going to have any kind of meeting with Mr. Putin? I would hope not, for the same reason as you mentioned. Uh, Putin would be perfectly capable of uh, poisoning uh, President Zelensky uh, personally. It's better not to meet uh, such a, a person. The only reason would be that then Putin has to leave uh, Russia and then perhaps uh, his surrounding could carry out a coup against him. Boy, what a confusing time. Nonetheless, I mean, many in Ukraine believe, Anders, that, um, you know, Russia is just using this time so that they can regroup, uh, refuel, re, um, you know, energize their, their military and come back for another hit. Is, is that in, in play? I think that's a, an intention of theirs. Clearly, they have lost so much so that they need to regroup very seriously to be able to continue uh, fighting. But the Ukrainians have so far shown that they are perfectly able to negotiate yeah. and continue fighting at the uh, same time. So uh, the troop constellations will be uh, uh, quite different now. But given that the Russians seem to be unable to organize even elementary logistics, uh, the Ukrainians are probably gaining over time. Boy, oh boy. Well, the last we spoke two weeks ago, you said uh, Ukraine will win this and you're still standing to that prediction. I hope you're right. And we'll uh, continue watching to see how this develops. Thanks so much for your time. I know it's a very busy time for you, so I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Very nice to talk to you, Alex. Thank you. That is Anders Asland, who is uh, author of the book Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Path from Market Economy to Kleptocracy. He's uh, great on Twitter. Anders Asland, if you want to follow him, because he kind of gives a play-by-play every few minutes of what he sees going on, and he is adamant that Ukraine will win, even though they have lost so much. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join me live now, 7 o'clock sharp, Monday through Friday. I'm Alex Pearson. Thanks for listening here on Push.